Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest, and I do see a few guests in the chat room, and you wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions or make a comment. And then following the show, you can continue this discussion on AfroGenius.com and research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. In fact, please like both pages. Well, tonight's show will focus on a newly released book, A Chosen Exile, a history of racial passing in American life. This book examines the phenomenon of racial passing in the United States from the late 18th century to the present. The author, Allison Hobbs, is an assistant professor in the history department at Stanford. She graduated magna cum laude from Harvard, and she received a Ph.D. with distinction from the University of Chicago. She has received fellowships from the Ford Foundation, the Clayman Institute for Gender Research, and the Center for the Comparative Study of Race and Ethnicity at Stanford. Allison teaches courses on American identity, African-American history, African-American women's history, and 20th century American history. She has won numerous teaching awards, including the Phi Beta Kappa Teaching Prize. She has appeared on C-SPAN and National Public Radio, and her work has been featured on CNN and Slate.com. Now, this subject has been covered in other episodes, and I encourage you to listen to the most recent broadcast with Daniel Strofstein on June 27th as he discussed his book and research, The Invisible Line, A Secret History of Race in America. And please continue to review Stephen Riley's website for new and upcoming works on mixedracestudies.org. So let me give a warm welcome to author and professor Allison Hobbs to research at the National Archives and beyond. Welcome, Allison. Well, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. I'm so appreciative for your invitation. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Well, it's a pleasure to have you, and I'm just looking at some of the people in the chat room, and I know that we're all very, very eager to have you share with us, first of all, what motivated you to explore this topic of racial passing and to to write this book? Well, thank you so much for that question. So I came to this because of a story that my aunt told me several years ago. And it was a story that really stuck with me. It actually kind of haunted me. 
and it was a story about a distant relative of ours who had grown up on um, the south side of Chicago. And she lived in, you know, south side of Chicago, a very historic African-American neighborhood. Um, this would have been in the 20s and 30s when she was growing up. Um, she grew up like any other black child of her day. She attended the predominantly black Wendell Phillips High School. Um, she watched as the historic Bud Billiken Parade made its way through Chicago's south side, uh, probably the largest African-American parade in America to, to this day. Um, and she, she lived a life, you know, as I said, like any other black child of her day. Now, what was different for her, though, was that she was very light-skinned, she looked white, and her mother made a decision that when she graduated from high school that she would leave Chicago's South Side and she would send her daughter to Los Angeles. She wanted her daughter to pass as a white woman. And her mother felt very strongly about this. She felt that this was the best way that she could improve her daughter's life circumstances. She felt that this was a way for her to give her daughter a much better life and, and many more opportunities than she would have had if she had stayed on Chicago's South Side and lived the rest of her life as, as, a, as a black woman. So our, our relative did not want to pass. She did not want to leave the only life that she had ever known, all of her friends, her family, her neighborhood. Um, but her mother was determined and, and the matter was, was decided. So um, she she moves to California. She years about a decade and a half later, she she marries a white man. She has white children who don't know anything about her her background, um, and then she receives this very inconvenient phone call, and it's her mother, and she's calling to tell her that her father is dying and she must come home immediately. And despite these dire circumstances, our relative would never come back to the south side of Chicago. She told her mother that she was a white woman now and there was simply no turning back, um, that it just was not possible for her to return to the south side. And when my aunt told me this story, it really moved me because I imagined how difficult and how heartbreaking that must have been for this relative of ours to have to say that she couldn't come back for her father's funeral, for her to know that she would never see her father again, she'd never see her mother again, she would never see her siblings again. And in addition to all of those really profound and heartbreaking losses, um, there's so many others. You know, she would never get to see the south side of Chicago again. She'd never get to go to another Bud Billiken parade. Um, she'd never get to bring her children to a Bud Billiken parade the way many black parents did. Um, so it really, this story really stuck with me and it really made me think about passing very differently um, because I think we often think about passing as being a very individualistic practice, but this story showed me just how collaborative it had to be um, and, and also it showed me how many people were affected by it, that it wasn't just the person who passed that was affected, but also the whole family that was affected, especially if it meant that the person was going to pass permanently and really sever all ties with with their family. Um, so, so I was really moved by this story, and this made me wonder how many other stories like like this might be out there. Um, and that's really how I got started on the project. Right, and it's it's as you just said. I mean, it's it's heartbreaking though. It is profound. Because once you cross over and make that decision, you're never going back. You're turning your back on your culture, your other life. And, I mean, it's, it's just sad just to hear you tell uh, right. this story. But then how could you find, and, and this is kind of the, the next part of, 
why did you decide to do this, but how did you begin your research to find people and sources to help you understand the the whole impact of, of racial passing? Yes. Well, that was something that I was very concerned about. When I started this project as a graduate student, I was very worried that I would have a lot of difficulty finding sources. And, you know, uh, that, that we sort of have this kind of conventional wisdom that studying passing is something that novelists can do or, you know, talking about passing or writing about passing is something for novelists or for playwrights or for poets, um, but not for historians because the people who passed covered their tracks and they didn't leave any evidence. They didn't leave any trace in the historical record. So I was very worried that I might have some difficulty in finding sources, but I was really surprised at just how many sources there were once I got into the archives. And I started by looking at family history. So I started at Moreland Spingern Research Center at, at Howard University, and I looked through E. Franklin Frazier's papers, and between about the 1920s and 1940s, Frazier, the very famous black sociologist, had a number of his students write their family histories. And as I was reading through the family histories, I was very... Um, I was very surprised and very struck by how many students had tremendous difficulty writing their family history because someone in their family had passed as white. So they didn't know much about one side of their family, you know, or they knew that there was always something kind of secretive or there was sort of a, 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 a kind of missing link in their family tree because someone had passed as white. So I was really struck by the number of instances that I found where um, the students were having difficulty writing these histories and were talking about how they knew that they had family members who had passed and they didn't know much about them or about that side of the family. And that was also what helped me to see how what, what a large circle passing affected that you know again it wasn't just the person who passed but it was also you know the student who's trying to write their family history and who doesn't know a side of their family because someone who passed or the student who says you know well my mother never really talked about this person because they passed as white and they we kind of lost to our family you know and many many of the stories even went so far as to kind of equate passing with death and to say that, yes. you know, because this person passed, we have no idea what happened to them. And in many ways, it sort of mirrors the experience of, of someone dying and of, of losing the person, you know, forever. Um, so I started with the family histories, and then that led me to other kinds of sources, um, I, I certainly did draw on novels and, and on literature and film. In many cases, some of those novels and, and literature um, were written by people who had experienced passing or who um, who knew people who passed, so they were sort of writing about experiences that they had had. So a lot of the, some, some of the novels are kind of semi-autobiographical in, in, in that sense. Um, and so I really had to cast a wide net. I mean, I really had to look at, you know, kind of as many different kinds of sources as I possibly could, court cases. Um, there was a very interesting study about mixed-race families that was published in the 1930s um, by a woman named Carolyn Bonday, and I looked at her study, and then I looked at the letters and the correspondence that she wrote to some of the people who were 
who took part in her study, and they also talked a lot about passing. Some of them did not want to be included in her study because they were afraid that once the study was published that um, it was likely that people would then find out that they were passing. Um, so I tried my best to cast as wide of a net as I could in terms of looking at you know, across a kind of spectrum of sources so that I could kind of knit together this story. Okay, and so, which is just amazing, just to think that, as I looked at your notes, I could see all of the various sources and the stories uh, that you, you mentioned in your book. But let's uh, just provide us with some racial passing, let's say background, beginning in the 18th century. And then uh, just explore and help us understand what it meant to pass in the antebellum South after emancipation, Reconstruction, and then Jim Crow. I know this is a lot, but <laughs> I'm giving it to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, no, thank you for the opportunity to, t to talk about this. So I start my book in the late 18th century, and the reason why I start there is because I really think that that's really when you see the first um, sources around passing. And, and I, I should have mentioned this in my previous answer that, that one set of sources that I rely on quite heavily at, in the beginning of the book, um, I, I, look, I look a lot at runaway slave advertisements. And what's fascinating about runaway slave advertisements is that slave masters are writing these advertisements and they are alerting the public to the fact that they, they have, they, there's a slave of theirs who has run away and this slave looks white. And they want the public to know, you know, be careful and please look out for this person. This, this slave may be much more difficult to find because they look white. And mm -hmm. it's possible that runaway slave advertisements are actually the first sources that we have that really document passing. Because throughout a number of these advertisements, we see slave masters who either explain that the, the, the enslaved person may either look white or may try to pass as a white man or woman or may try to pass as free. So what's interesting in this very early period is that there's a concept of passing as free. And this is before, this is, this is in a moment when racial categories aren't quite as fixed as they would become by the antebellum period. So it was possible to pass as a free man or a free woman and by doing so to escape from slavery. So this mm -hmm. was one vehicle or one channel that many enslaved people um, could, could take to try to pass, pass and to escape from slavery. Now, by the antebellum period, once, um, once racial categories become more fixed and once you have the kind of um, – the, the, the explosion of, of plantations and, and uh, particularly the movement of, of slaves from, you know, northern smaller farms and, and plantations to the south, um, you continue to see this, this emphasis on um, lighter-skinned slaves who also try to pass as white to escape from slavery. Now, during this period, to pass as white was a means of escaping from slavery, but in many cases, the people who passed did not necessarily plan to live the rest of their lives as white. So, in okay. other words, they were using passing almost as a vehicle, a channel, a kind of cloak to get out of slavery. And then once free and once in the north or, or in Canada, um, they, they would then perhaps, 
you know, make the decision that they would they would live their lives as as black. And there's one very fascinating case of a woman named Ellen Craft. And she passes as a free she she passes as a southern man, a white southern man to escape from slavery. And it's fascinating because her husband, who is darker than she is, passes he pretends to be her slave. And the crafts escape is just I mean, it really should be a movie because yes, the it craft, should be a movie. <laughs> they have an incredible um, understanding of Southern gender and social norms. So Ellen Craft knows that she has to pass as a man because it would be highly unconventional for a white woman to travel alone. Um, so, so I'm sorry, it would be highly unconventional for, for a, a, a Southern white woman to travel alone or to travel with a black slave. So she knows that she's got to pass as a man. Um, she knows that she's, that they've got to leave at Christmas when, um, it's more kind of common for slaves to have a little bit more flexibility. Masters would often grant slaves passes where they could go visit relatives or others who were on surrounding plantations. So she knows she's got a little bit more freedom during that time. Um, she also knows that it's customary for Southern gentlemen to um, to write their names in hotel registers when they check in to hotels, but she's illiterate. So what she does is she bandages, she sort of puts a cast around her arm and feigns, uh, she, she pretends that, she, that she's injured and that she can't write. And by doing so, she sort of wins the sympathy of other travelers who then sign for her um, so that it doesn't have to, so that it's not revealed that she can't sign for herself or that she can't write. Um, she also knows that she has a beardless face and that that was highly unusual for a, for a, a, a Southern man during this time. So she bandages her face. And that also allows, so that allows her to cover up the fact that she doesn't have a beard, and it also allows her to feign illness so that people won't talk to her quite as much, so that they won't notice the tone and the pitch of her voice, um, so that she's able to sort of keep to herself by appearing as, you know, someone who's, who's injured and who's ill. So by feigning illness and, and deafness, um, and, and, you know, by, by sort of creating this costume, um, she and her husband are able to pass and supposedly it, it's, it's written in their, in their narrative that she played the role of a Southern gentleman so well that, that Southern white women swooned in her presence. Um, but, but, <laughs> but she's successful. They story. make it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes. Well, before you uh, continue to take us uh, to, you know, at the emancipation, uh, I do have questions coming out of the chat room. Okay, okay. so the first question is, um, Dr. Hobbs, back in 1947, the NAACP Secretary Walter White suggested right. that 12,000 black people passed each year. Do you have an estimate of how many people passed? That's a great question, and it's something that um, I'm often asked because I think that it's it makes sense that we want to get an understanding of just how widespread was this practice. Unfortunately, I don't know. It would be almost impossible to to, to estimate um, or to take a guess at how many people passed, partially because many people who passed didn't leave a trace. I mean, going back to the question about, about sources, you know, I was very lucky yes. in that I was able to find a number of sources, but um, many people did not leave a trace. So we really don't know, you know, particularly if we think about these moments during history where there is incredible upheaval. You know, we don't know, you know, in during the Civil War, you know, or in the aftermath of the Civil War, how many 
um, lighter-skinned slaves might have walked off of the plantations and passed as white and never looked back. You know, how many during the Great Migration, how many people might have moved from a southern town or city to a northern city and in the anonymity of that northern city decided to pass as white? How many people Mm -hmm. are there who maybe did not necessarily even choose to pass but perhaps were mistaken as white, which happens, I mean, there's numerous stories of of cases where um, people didn't even necessarily, they weren't intending to pass, but someone mistook them as being white. um, And then, you know, like, so for example, there's a lot of cases of people who were, of men who were signing up or enlisting in the military. And perhaps Mm -hmm. the military official writes that they are white on their their um, forms and then they've got a brand new identity so it's really hard and then once you had a, a document you know once you had an official document that said that you were white it's it's then then you're white you know um so so it's it's really hard to 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 really offer an estimate um but i think that it's very interesting that so many people tried to do that so there's an ebony magazine in 1947 an article by roy otley and the title is five million u.s white negroes um so there's always been this kind of uh sort of interest or this kind of fixation on guessing, you know, how many people are passing and, and who's doing it and, you know, oh, isn't this, isn't this, 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 this intriguing phenomenon that, that people are passing. So there's always been this kind of interest in taking these guesses, um, but it, it would be really hard to actually estimate how many people actually did it. And I guess the other thing I should also say there, too, is that people there, – there were different types of, of passing. So there were some people who passed permanently, like the relative that I described um, from my family. Yeah. There were also people who passed just temporarily. So, you know, maybe from 9 to 5, you know, or, or just to work. People, people would often pass to work because they had – you know, greater opportunities, um, particularly when it came to white-collar employment. Um, So we also can't really get a gauge of, you know, how many people pass temporarily or situationally, you know, to get a better job, um, to enjoy a better seat in a movie theater, to sit at a better table in a restaurant, you know, all of those kinds of ways that people – may have passed temporarily. It's very hard to to gauge, but very interesting to speculate about it. Very interesting. And then there's another question coming out, and you may have addressed some of it, but when is passing no longer passing? Okay, so... Meaning, and they go on to say, (laughs) meaning if one's parent... You know the, the 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 questions are going by so quickly that I can't read it. But anyway, back to when is uh, passing? When does it stop being passing? Meaning, if one's parent or grandparent pass, then you know the following gen- generation they're living as white and they're now culturally white. White are they the descendants still considered people who are passing? You know, that's a very interesting question, and I, in my research and in my writing, I'm very careful to only look at people who identified as black and then who talked about themselves as passing as white, who made a decision that they were going to live as white. And the reason why I, I feel like that's a, that's a very important kind of distinction to make is because I think that everyone should have the right and the opportunity to identify themselves however they choose. Um, and so I wouldn't want to assume that someone is passing um, Especially in a case where, as you know, as you've as you've laid out, you know, perhaps their grandparent was they had a black grandparent, 
and they didn't know that grandparent or a great grandparent, you know, and then the rest of their family is white and all they've ever known is that they that they're white. So so I I try to be very careful with my definition of passing and to really to really sort of focus on people who at one time identified as black, saw themselves as black, categorized themselves as black, and then made a a kind of deliberate conscious decision to live to live as white, to pass as white. Right. Well, believe it or not, it is at a point where we're going to take a quick break because I want to come back and just talk more about what it meant to pass. Uh, you've said a little bit about ante- the antebellum South, and then after emancipation, Reconstruction and Jim Crow. So we're going to take this very quick break and come right back. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. You can also find some of the archive shows on my website, www.geniebroots.com. Now, I am opening up the phone lines for those of you that would like to call in to ask a question or make a comment. You have been listening to Allison Hobbs. She is the author of A Chosen Exile, A History of Racial Passing in American Life. And, Allison, the chat room is buzzing with a lot of comments. But oh, wonderful. Let's continue the discussion. Oh, yes, they're talking, and it's great. It's really great. It's a, it's a conversation that I think that we need to have. We need to discuss it and, and just talk about what does it mean. So let's talk about after emancipation. What did sure. passing, what happened, what did it mean, why did people do it? Just share with us what you uh, uncovered. Sure, sure. You know, I want to just tell a very quick story. The The question that was raised before uh, just made me think about Walter White, and there's just a, a story that I want to share very quickly, which I, I just love this story because Walter White, as 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 the caller, I'm sure, you know, knows very well, um, was very light-skinned. He had blonde hair and blue eyes. He looked white. Um, and he would travel to the South and investigate lynching. And he would, you know, go to the South, find out what happened, and then he would come back to the North, to the offices of the NAACP, and write editorials and, and you know, discuss this, you know, horrible crime of lynching. Um, there's one story, though, that, that, that's, 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 that's a little, it's kind of humorous because he tells a story about sitting on a train next to a white man, and the white man is bragging to him, saying that he knows how to recognize a person who's passing. 
And Walter White says, oh, really, do you? You know, how, how, how do you do that? And the white man takes Walter White's hand in his, into his hand, and he says to him, now, see, if you were really black, it would show here on the half moons on your fingernails. And this was <laughs> a kind of folk mythology, this sort of idea about a kind of telltale sign of racial identity being, you know, being able to see it on, 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 on one's fingernails. Um, there was also this, this idea that, that, that there was like a bluish tinge on, on fingernails that also revealed racial identity. So in some of the, the 19th century novels about passing, people would wear gloves to, to conceal their, their hands so that you couldn't see their fingernails. But, but I love that story about Walter White because I just think it's it's so comical that here you know this man is so certain and he he's so certain about race and racial identity that that here he is sitting next to a man who is actually black and he's saying you know well I would I would be able to tell you know so so there's there's lots of kind of um, funny stories like that too. I mean, passing, I think for the most part is, is quite tragic. You know, there's, there's a lot of tragedy and a lot of loss, but there's also, um, some stories that, that, that bring a little bit of levity, um, uh, to, to, to this history as well. Um, but to get right. back to your question about reconstruction. Well, before, before I even get you to answer that question, we do have a question coming from the, uh, on, online. So I need to take that okay. question. Uh, caller, you're alive. Do you have a question or a comment? That's area code 301. Sure. Hello, my name is Stephen Riley, and uh, I really appreciate your work, Dr. Hobson. By the way, I grew up in a town called Basking Ridge, New Jersey. So I'm oh, sure you're familiar wow. with. we're neighbors. Yeah, we, yeah, no longer live there. My parents retired to Harlem a couple of years ago, but uh, I grew up there in the uh, in the 70s and the 80s. So um, it's a real pleasure. Also, um, so yeah, it's really a pleasure. I've been following you on my website, so it's really it's a great pleasure to finally talk to you. So, I was going Michael. to say thank you so much. Thank you so much for, for all of your wonderful support of my work. I really appreciate it, and I really appreciate all of the wonderful information that, that you've distributed. Thank you very much. The, the, the question I have is, is uh, something about the 21st century. Is there a future for passing? Yeah. As far as should I say, does passing have a future? You know, that's a great question, and I'm, I'm often asked, do people still pass? And, you know, I think, I'm, I'm sure that, that people do still pass, and I'm sure that passing will continue. And, and one thing that I talk about in my book is that, you know, racial passing is just a subset of a much larger phenomenon, you know, that there are all kinds of passing that, that occur, whether it's class passing or gender passing or, you know, religious passing. I mean, there's, there's many different forms of passing that, that, that occur. Um, but I think the thing that's really important is to sort of locate the practice of passing within the particular constraints of a particular time period. And I think what's fascinating about our own time period is that it's very different from the 1920s or the 1820s. So we're living in a moment that someone like Ellen Craft really couldn't have imagined. And part of, the, part of what I think our moment really um, – uh, one of the major characteristics of our moment is that that we're living at a time when there are there's a much greater acceptance of racial intermixture and of and of a variety of racial categories. So I think Ellen Craft or even someone during the Jim Crow era, you know, was pretty much living in a very binary racial world. You were black or you were white, you know, and there, there, there are some people who were arguing against that, people like Charles Chestnut, um, Gene Toomer is another one, one of the novelists during the Harlem Renaissance who's saying that, you know, we need to have a much more complicated understanding about race. It isn't just black and white. So it's not to say that everyone 
only saw a kind of binary system, but for the most part, that was the way that American society was organized. You know, and it really wasn't until really the 1960s when, you know, the United States becomes much more diverse, becomes much more multiracial, um, immigration starts to really change the demographics of the country. Um, and then by the 1990s, when you have more mixed race people, partially due to the fact that interracial marriage is now, you know, is, is, becomes legal and that there's a, there's a larger number of people who are, um, who are marrying interracially and are having mixed race children. So we're in a moment now where I think we have a much broader acceptance and recognition of racial categories. So I think that many of the core issues of race and identity sort of are still with us, but I think that the fact that we're in such a uh, uh, such a uh, the fact that we're in a much more multiracial world and nation means that the practice of passing is not it's not the same as it was in the 1820s or the 1920s. Okay. Thank you very much. I hope that answers oh. your question. Oh, thank you. That was an excellent answer. Thank you very much. Sure. Okay, thank you, Stephen. Okay, well, I jumped over the question that I originally asked you, but I want to go back to that question. But while you're talking, tell us a little about what is loss and what was loss mm -hmm. uh, when you talk about passing. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. So I, I really started to think about loss from this personal story from my family history. Um, and it was thinking about the fact that this relative of mine, you know, was not able to go to her father's funeral, never saw her family again, never returned to Chicago's South Side. And it made me think about how painful that must have been. And it made me think about how in so many cases to pass as white meant to lose one's place in one's family. It meant to lose one's place in a community. Um, it meant to lose um, a lot of the the kind of family stories, to not be able to pass down the family stories or the jokes or the the memories, um, to lose that 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 kind of history of one's family. Um, so I think that the loss is quite profound, and of course it differed for different people. Um, and of course I'm sure that there were some people who passed and who perhaps did not feel loss. You know, who perhaps passed and and began a life as as a white person and you know never looked back but I think that it's kind of human nature to um, you know once we sort of turn away from something we always kind of wonder what could have been or we always kind of wonder you know what what we're missing by the different directions or the different decisions that we've made um, so so I I I think that that there that that many of my sources really describe this sense of kind of a displacement or an alienation or a a a a, a sense of of losing part of themselves actually um, that's one of the one of the quotes from uh, one of the sources in my book talks about um, how she felt as though she had lost a part of herself um by by passing that there was that there was a part of herself that that she could no longer you know access um there's another story of a man who um he's he's passed as white and he's actually very happy and very satisfied with his life and then he ends up meeting a man who's from the town where he's originally from and uh, he he feels that that he's safe in 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 talking to this man about the fact that he has passed, and um, as he's talking to the man, he he continually is asking him questions. You know, 
what happened to this person? What happened to that person? Is this place still there? Is that place still there? So this sense of being kind of uprooted or, or um, disconnected seems to come through in a lot of the stories that that I've that I've that I've read, and then there's some really tragic stories, like the one of a woman named Elsie Roxborough, who was a a woman um, from Detroit. Um, she passed as white after she graduated from the University of Michigan, um, and she this was in she she passed in the 1940s, and um, she ended up committing suicide. She she was um, and 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 we can't know of course you know exactly why she committed suicide or what 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 had happened but we do know that she struggled financially she asked her father for money her father refused her and then three days later she was dead and her sister who was also very light-skinned and who could also pass as white um, had to uh, actually Elsie was living in New York at the time that, that when she was passing and when she committed suicide and her sister who could also pass as white had to travel to New York to claim Elsie's body um, the the fact that her sister looked white allowed Elsie to remain white even in death and one of the things that I find very haunting and very tragic about this story is that um, Elsie's sister never talked to her father again and, you know, I think that he, that, that she really kind of blamed her father for Elsie's death. Um, so again, I think that what, what's, what's very um, tragic and, and profoundly um, painful about this history is the way that it, that it reaches out and affects so many other people besides those who who pass. You know, there's there's the famous scene in um, the Human Stain, um, where the 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 novel by Philip Roth, where the um, the the protagonist um, tells his mother that he's going to pass, and she talks about how you know, that, that what this means is that once a year she'll sit at, you know, a, a train station, at a crowded train station, and he'll, he'll maybe bring his children, you know, walk his children past her, and she'll get to see them, but she won't actually be able to talk to them or have any kind of relationship with them. And that kind of thing comes up a lot in stories about passing this, the heartbroken mother who can't acknowledge their child um, because they're passing as white. Um, so right. I think the loss is is really profound. It's really wide reaching and wide ranging, um, and it and it certainly touches both the people who passed and the people who that who they loved and who were were connected to them. Right, and a, a comment uh, came out of the chat that's saying that most people, when you hear about passing, it focuses on the gain. And not the loss, right? And right. what you're what you're presenting to us is that they may gain, but they also lose a lot. Exactly, more. exactly. And I think that that's really what I want my book to do. That I I I think that scholars have been attentive to what's what's gained. And it makes sense because there was a lot to gain. I mean, certainly during the years of Jim Crow, during the years of legalized segregation, the fa if you were white, it meant that you had access to far more employment opportunities. You know, as I mentioned, particularly when it came to white collar employment, you had access to better housing. You could vote. You could um, live, you, you, you could live in a better neighborhood. As I said, you could, you could, enjoy just numerous social privileges, you know, going to the movies, um, sitting in a nice, sitting, going to a nice restaurant, 
um, being called Mr. or Mrs., being treated with more respect and more dignity. Um, there were so many reasons why, there were so many things to gain by passing, but what I really want my book to do is to explore what there was to lose and to kind of rewrite the history of passing a bit to kind of look at what people lost when they decided um, to, to, um, to, to, to leave a black racial identity. Right, and this is, this is different uh, when we start looking at books on passing because you don't see, as you are pointing out, the losses. Uh, there's a question that's coming out of the uh, chat room, and it wanted to know, did you find cases such as the case of Shirley uh, Hayslip's family where her mother, too dark to pass, had successful children, and the other siblings who passed lived white? but as poor whites, and they never reached their potential. Did you find any, any stories like that? Yes, you know, that's, that's also very, very interesting, and that's, that's a really incredible story and a beautifully written book. Um, but certainly, I mean, it, it's, it's very interesting how the life choices and the life, the, the life outcomes of, all, of, of many of these people, um, in, in many cases, th there was a lot to gain by being, by being white. But, you know, if we look at a case like Elsie Roxborough that I just mentioned, you know, she passed as, as white. And it's, it's kind of thing to think about why she would have done that because she was from a very wealthy family. Um, she grew up during the Depression. Her, she drove her father's cars. She rode horses. Um, the family vacationed at Idlewild, which was a, or still is a, a um, at, at, well, at that time it was a very kind of elite uh, vacation spot for African Americans. Um, and a number of newspapers talk about Elsie and talk about how she was really at the top, at the very top of um, Detroit's black social world, but yet still she decided to pass as white and we will never really know you know why why you know what wh I guess it, it just makes you wonder and kind of question you know that that it seems that she still felt that there was more to gain by being white that she could she could realize her dreams more so as a white woman than she could as as a black woman um, but 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 certainly there are there are just numerous stories of families where some people made the decision to pass and others did not, um, and it's very interesting to see how their life circumstances, you know, uh, how how their life circumstances kind of evolved. And, you know, there, there's another question coming out of the chat, and you're right, it, it is something interesting to see just how their circumstances evolve. The question that's coming out of the chat, have you found any instances of those successful in passing found themselves more harsh on other blacks in yeah. order to maintain the appearance of whiteness? Absolutely, absolutely. So there's a number of stories where um, people will talk about how they had to um, this this actually really gets to a very important point about the performativity of race. And part of that performance, part of playing the role for many people of a white person was to treat black people unfairly you know and to 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 act in very hurtful ways towards black people so there are a lot of stories of people who you know were afraid that they could potentially be discovered and for that reason sort of adopted the kind of racist attitudes and behaviors of whites as a way to kind of um, to kind of um, 
sort of make their white identity more believable or to sort of shore up their their whiteness. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a lot of stories by the 1940s, 1950s, and certainly by the 60s, there's a lot of uh, testimonials that are published in the black press where African Americans are saying people who who have passed as white are saying that they that they are that they are done with passing and that they want to return to the black community. Um, and in many cases, people will say that they got tired of that roller coaster ride of one mm-hmm. being afraid of being discovered, but also of having maybe not even necessarily engaging in racist behavior, but having to stand by and having to to not say anything, having to to sort of look the other way or laugh along with a racist joke because that was part of performing whiteness. So that right. comes it was up the game a lot. they had to play. Yes, right. indeed. Exactly. Well, th- we, this is such an, an interesting topic, and for those of you who have not purchased your book, a Chosen Exile, A History of Racial Passing in American Life. Put it on your wish list. This is a book that you should definitely read. Well, we're getting close to the end of the show. I know that it it seems like it just really flew by very quickly. Do you have any, any parting words that you would like to share with the listeners before we close out tonight's show? Well, I guess I would just say that, you know, I I, I would want to just emphasize that, um, you know, I, I was quite interested in looking at this topic of loss and using passing, looking at the lens of looking at passing through the lens of loss. And I, I hope that, that that will help to offer a kind of more nuanced or a more complicated view of the history of passing um, by, by helping us to think not only about what was gained, but also about what, what people did lose and, and how profound and how heartbreaking many of those losses were. Um, and I, I also, you know, given that your show is, is so much about genealogy, you know, I also would want to encourage listeners to, um, to, to, to investigate their own families and to, to look into their own family histories and their own family stories because I, I'm so happy that my aunt shared that story with me about my relative um, because it really kind of created um, this, this, this real interest and a real kind of passion about understanding passing more intimately um, and something that I've, you know, spent many years working on. Um, but, but I guess I would, I would want to encourage listeners to share those family stories and to, to do the genealogical research to learn more about, about their families. Well, thank you very much, and uh, wonderful parting words for all of us. Well, please tune in next week. My guest next week is Linda Critchlow-White, and she's going to uh, discuss a historical memoir back there then that was written by her mother, Marietta Stevens Critchlow. So please join me next Thursday. So good night, everyone. Thank you. Thank you so much, Allison Hobbs. And remember, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, research at the National Archives and beyond. Now, you can continue this discussion on research at the National Archives Beyond and the Afrogenius Facebook pages. Also remember to listen to the African Roots Podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday morning. Thank you for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexandra Bennett, and this show is sponsored by BB's Genealogy and Educational Services, LLC. I look forward to you joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, Allison. Good night. Thank you so much for having me on your show.